going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 396, and my guest is Kinneret Sherman. Kinneret was 43 when she was diagnosed with stage 2 rectal cancer. After holistic options failed and it advanced to stage 3, she opted for more traditional methods. But no one told her about the toll it would take on her specifically on her sexual organs and she wrote a book about her experience called healing the deepest wounds where she talks about the physical and emotional toil that chemotherapy and radiation caused her and i mean so many others it's something that i think we all know that the treatments for cancer basically in a lot of cases, bring you within an inch of your life. It's they, they practically kill you to save you. And the aftermath of that on the body is just severe, emotionally, physically. So she's she's really open about it in this conversation. We talk about everything she went through. And just as a trigger warning, there are some explicit conversations in here. And be aware of that if that is something that might trigger you or or something you might not want to listen to. She has had all sorts of interesting career paths. Uh, most notably now, she's a life coach, a hospice spiritual care provider, and a patient advocate. And she tours around and talks about her experience and helps others through their experiences. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. And find my music on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind be love. My gosh, we need it desperately in the world. I feel like every time I turn on the news, another horrific thing is going on in the world. I'm trying to take in as much good news as humanly possible as a way to combat all the sadness and and horribleness out there. There's more good. I promise there is. We have to look for it. Take care of yourself. Be well. Here we go. Kinneret Sherman, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to see you. Yeah, you too. Shout out to cousin Michael. Totally. Hey, Mike. Let's go back to the beginning of you. Where were you raised up? What was family life like? What shaped you? So I was born in Israel. My parents divorced when I was four. And so there was some... A turmoil around normal divorces and children. And uh, I lived with my mom for a while, then moved to my dad's. Then we came to the United States. Middle school here, high school, college. Went back to Israel for six years, did my master's there. And then I came back to the United States. And was your master's in mathematics? No, my master's is, is in the life sciences. And my first degree is in biochemistry. What drew you to that? Um, I thought about maybe working in medicine, maybe being a physician. I wasn't sure. It just happened to be that I was good in math and science. I got the high school math award and the high school science award and other awards. And it was just like the path kind of rolled that way. What do you remember about your childhood in Israel? I think a lot of people don't really know what it's like there. What do you recall? It's very uh, communal, kind of very social. It's not like in the United States that people live in separate houses. They live in apartments. People own their apartments. So it's easy to just go downstairs and go visit the neighbor's kids. There's a lot of kids, a lot of neighbors. And it was fun to go after school to visit, you know, from one person to the next just a normal childhood living in the suburbs of Tel Aviv in a town called Ramat Gan. Only child? No. I have an older brother 
and uh, two much younger. The fact that your parents divorced so young, did when you were so young, did you end up with six step parents, anything like that, that shaped any part of your life? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. It, I think it all shaped me. It all shaped me. Yeah, yeah. My father has been married several times and my mom remarried. Definitely, every step parent had some kind of an influence. When you went back to Israel for six years, what brought you then back to the States again? I went back to Israel for a million reasons. I ended up doing my master's there, my first one, but I went there uh, also to get close with my mom and her family to see what it was like to live in Israel as an adult. At the time, there was um, some peace accords uh, between that were being signed between Rabin and Arafat. That brought a lot of hope for me. So I think a lot of reasons together. I lived there for about five and a half years. Family situation there was more challenging for me. Family life here, people were very warm and accepting. And I think with the family in Israel at the time, it was it was challenging. And then my brother who was here called me. He would call me on the phone and say, hey, I miss you. I want you to come and live here. I miss you. I miss you. I miss you. You should come live here. <laughs> and finally I did. I came over. I came back. Sounds like you've had quite a lot of changes in your life. Uh, I wrote it down. Uh, math teacher, spiritual psychology, Thai massage, chaplain. It's a lot of different lifetimes. Yeah. So I, you know, I think in, in I've always had an artistic side and I've always had a science mathematical kind of side and a humanistic kind of side all playing together um, really nicely and uh, because I was good in math and science you know I, I really wasn't sure shall I do that or shall I go to the performing arts and my dad had a lot of influence on me going into the math and science so I did but I could see it wasn't my passion but I wasn't sure, research wasn't my passion. So I, I wasn't sure what was. And so then I, I worked as a teacher for a while, adults, uh, children. And when I was in middle school, teaching middle school, once there was, um, I had to meet at the, at the eighth grade math teacher's classroom. I mean, English teacher's classroom. And when I went there, she had a sign on the wall and said, you are the author of your own life story. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it, Susan. I couldn't. There was just something that was sucking my whole presence into this one sign. You're the author of your own life story. And I was 30 years old and I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I write my life story. How's my story right now? And I thought, wow, I'd be so bored if I were reading my story. I'd be super bored. And I was like, oh, no, I got to change. And I, and I didn't know what. The only thing I knew was that I had traveled between the ages of 22 to 30. I would just go somewhere with a backpack by myself and travel for two, three months. And I said, okay, you're going to go and travel. And you're going to come back when you're ready to come back. Because the other travels, I was never ready to come back. And so I went, I took a leave of absence for a year. I went to the Far East. And then when I was there, probably my third month in, I was in Thailand and people told me to meditate. And a friend of mine sent me off to my travels with a book. And it, the book said that if, Many people tell you the same thing. You sh you, it's the universe's way of telling you <laughs> you need to do it. I was not interested in meditation whatsoever. Zero. I had zero. Zero. And no matter who talked to me, I said, I'm not interested. I, you know, my, brain washed, my brain is already washed. I don't need to wash it again with more ideas and more concepts. But truth is that I was fascinated. went to a 10-day silent meditation retreat, and I was fascinated. And my mind opened up, and I thought, wow, this is incredible 
And then I stayed five more days because I was so fascinated that I asked one of the participants there to show me what she does because she really, I could see 10 days I watched her. She knew she knew how to meditate and I was still fidgeting. My mind couldn't do it. So I, Maria, will you teach me? And she did. She taught me what to do. I sat with her three times a day and I did. I just watched my belly move. And once I could only focus on that, she said, when a thought comes through your mind, just, just notice it, give it a name and then leave it. Go back to just noticing the breath. So the focus was so much on the movement of my abdomen only. I just wouldn't let it, my mind be distracted. Right. And then the thoughts started coming and I started naming them, planning, analyzing, fantasizing, futurizing. It was just, wow, wow, wow. First time in my life I could see what was running through this mind. And it was so fascinating. I was like, oh, that was a fun game to play. And then I was like, wow, I'm playing the game of me. It's all about me. Oh, my ego really loved that one. It's me. It's my show. So fun. I loved it so much. It was so much more interesting than watching television. But it was like watching television. Like, oh, these are the stories that are happening. That's what's happening in this screen. And then as I watched it more and more, because I was so fascinated, there became gaps. They just came out of the blue because the thoughts started coming slower and slower as I was watching them. And there was gaps and the gaps were so lovely and it took me a while to notice. And I, then I thought, wow, this is even nicer than the thoughts. Wow. 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 Like swimming in quiet. And I felt so good. So I just kept doing it. And it was so fun. I could sit there and watch one thought, I could sit and watch thoughts begin to form, not even when they were forming. There's energy coming on my right, and one on my left. And if I watched them, they wouldn't fuse into a thought. They just go out of the field. And it was all about being present, completely, completely focused. And then on the 15th day, so the <laughs> five days after, <laughs> after the first, the 10-day meditation retreat, I, I woke up in the morning and I sat in the forest and then um, I waited for thoughts and then just the whole construct of Kinneret left. There was no Kinneret, just a whole ego, all the thoughts, all the feelings, all the memories, all concepts disappeared. They just went. Whoosh, and there was no Kinneret. She didn't exist. It's fake. There was an energy inside, some kind of a light that was so loving and so powerful. And it was, it was the clearest of the clearest that that was truth and the personality was an illusion and that all of life is an illusion of the senses of perception that for 30 years i had no clue there there's actually no i i don't exist that was a huge realization and that home was inside it was not outside, not in anything or anyone. It's that light that's beyond anything that I can see in the physical. And that energy had no religion, or that energy light, I'm going to call it. And it also didn't have a gender. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. And so that changed the trajectory of my life because I had no context. So I started going to spiritual centers in Thailand and, and India. And what just happened? 
What was that? The ego came back. The ego came back. And it there it was. Same thing as before, dealing with the exact same issues. Afraid, scared, doubtful, <laughs> righteous, judgmental, on and on and on and on. And I thought, wow, wow, what do I do with that? There's this spiritual, and then there's what the ego does, and how do I live like that? Yeah, so then... You know, I wasn't interested anymore in teaching and I wasn't. The only thing I was interested in was going to meditation centers, meditating and learning more about the spiritual life. So that's how, you know, things changed. So I went from science, teaching, to spiritual understandings and learning more about that. What is that? Yeah. How does a soul for lack of a better word or energy exist in a world that requires food and water and shelter and health care and all of that how do you find the intersection that allows for you to be of spirit but also know that the shell casing the spirit's been shoved into has to be cared for without being i mean how does one be in it and not be of it well, somehow we find ourselves in this in this bodysuit, right? <laughs> somehow. And so we we get to choose. We get to choose how we want to care for this expression of life through us. And do we want to how much we want to play and what we want to play in the world of form? As long as we keep it as play, of course, we forget. We forget that it's play. Absolutely. So that what drew you into then the spiritual psychology degree. Explain what that is, first of all. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after I came back, it was clear to me that I couldn't just be a regular teacher and that I needed to find a vocation that would be better suited for my new understanding of life. And so I was looking around and I found... The University of Santa Monica, and I enrolled in spiritual psychology program, which was a master's program. And it's about the understanding that we are, you know, there's a spirit having a human experience. And again, how do we reconcile the two? How do we draw on the spiritual side and yet still address our human side, which judges and blames and has big feelings and tantrums all over the place? And how do we reconcile the two? And so it did call upon, you know, speaking with our higher self or our soul self uh, for guidance. There's a lot of metaphysical learning there, too, about how do we focus? Where does our mind focus as far as what we're creating in the world? Did you have an idea of where you wanted to take that degree or was it more about being in the learning and see what happens next. It was being in the learning and seeing what happens next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happens next? <laughs> well, I still didn't know what to do. I, I did study a Thai massage when I was in Thailand. So I said, well, why don't I do massage? I couldn't, I couldn't uh, work in a regular job. So I babysat family were all freaked out because I wasn't normal and they were very concerned that I wouldn't have money to pay for life so they started sending me people to babysit all of a sudden out of nowhere people were calling me to babysit and I was like who are you <laughs> oh your uncles gave me your number gave you oh oh right you know nice Jewish family nobody asks they just send people to call you I started to babysit and I started doing time massage and I started pet sitting and that's how I lived for about eight years. And about a year after I finished the, the spiritual psychology program, I was doing massage and a woman came in and she was, um, wow. She came in and it was like the dark, I don't know what kind of dark spirit she was in. And I was like, wow, whoa, that was like some darkness around this lady. And I said, Hey, what's going on? 
even though I was doing massage, I, I couldn't, I couldn't let her, I couldn't let her be the slow. It bothered me. So I said, Hey, what's going on? You know, I sat and I talked with her a little bit, I, you know, reflected back kind of what I heard. And, and then I said, you know, I see life and I see what you said in a totally different way. You know, would you like to hear? And she did. And then she had such a transformation. She was like a different person. She had light. She had a smile. It's like, wow, that, that was amazing. She came back like two weeks later and she said, I don't know what you did, but I was on a high, like for a whole week. And then slowly started coming down and I became me again. Yeah. And so then I started working with people. Doing energy work or time massage or both together? Like talking to them and doing massage. Both. Yeah. And then 2015 happens. Yes. 2015 happened and I uh, started feeling odd. And then there was, there was like blood, like a blood clump smeared on the stool. And I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with rectal cancer at age 43 ish yes 43 mm -hmm. yeah and was that did you have that in your family history was it shocking it was shocking yes my parents don't have cancer and didn't and only one grandparent had cancer and that was when she was 68 so here i was at 43 and yeah this came out of left field completely and did they have any indication at the time as to what might have brought it on? And did you have any symptoms other than seeing blood in the stool? So blood in the stool was the first thing. A little bit after that, there was like something in the pelvis. Something in the pelvis wasn't right. And I could feel something odd. And I didn't know if it was the female organs. Something was odd. And then I started feeling a sucking sensation, again, inside my pelvis, as if something was sucking my blood or the, my body's blood onto itself. I could feel it. And I, and I didn't know. I knew it was in the pelvis. And I remember telling people that. But I was like, that is such a weird sensation. So, so weird. And then hemorrhoids. So hemorrhoids are also quite normal for people with rectal cancer. Often patients go to their primary physician and they say, oh, I'm seeing some blood on the stool. And then the physician looks and says, oh, you have hemorrhoids. Go home and take a hemorrhoid cream. And that's what happened to me also, except that I knew it wasn't the hemorrhoids because I'm, I didn't have hemorrhoids usually, like what was causing the hemorrhoids. You know, so I was, I was nice and I took the, the hemorrhoid, I didn't take the hemorrhoid cream. I, I just went back a week later and said, something's not right. I'm feeling a whole lot of things here. Please do more testing. And then they did more testing and everything came back normal and, and I, and then my roommate said, you know, do you want to have a colonoscopy? And I said, I do. And I, I went back to the doctor again and I said, I want to have a colonoscopy. I'm actually not going to leave this office until you tell me that you're putting a referral to a gastroenterologist. And I hear this so many times from so many patients. Oh, I went, they told me it was a hemorrhoid. So I went home. I went, they did some testing. They said everything was okay. And I went home. And then, I, and then they wait six months, a year, 18 months, and then diagnose with stage four. Right. I mean, we have to be advocates for ourselves because we're in our bodies and nobody else is. And doctors may see things on a nonstop basis and they, they're not us. They're not in our bodies. It's so, so important to, I mean, they work for us. Let's be clear that we have to demand tests when we feel like we need to get them. Yes, absolutely. Women especially. Yes, absolutely. And people of color, people of color as well tend to be ignored. Yeah, yeah. But yes, we are the ones living in our bodies. And so it's it's our job to advocate. It's our job to go and say, okay, you didn't hear me the first time. Let me say it in a way you can hear me. How can you, what, what, does, what is it going to take for you to hear me? 
Did they push back with you? Yeah, because when when a person is under the the normal age of whatever they decide the testing is, yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, I had to return three times before before I was referred to a gastroenterologist. And the first time I spoke with a gastroenterologist and I was describing my sis, my symptoms on the phone, they said, oh, honey, you got to come in and you got to come in like fast. They knew already. So how shocking, you know, between, yeah. you know, the primary care physician and the specialist who knew exactly what I was dealing with. Bef you know, they probably didn't even need the colonoscopy. Level of care with specialists is hopefully they listen a little bit more clearly. So you are diagnosed with stage two rectal cancer. Yes. You're diagnosed stage two. And what happens next? They say, here are your options. We're going to give you chemo or radiation. And you didn't take to those options very well. Yeah, I was actually quite shocked, you know, at, at the treatments. Um, it was going to be radiation and chemo followed by a surgery and having an, an ileostomy and then, an, and then more chemo and another surgery. Explain what an ileostomy is. An ileostomy is an opening in the abdomen where the end of the small intestine is called the ileum is pulled out, outside of the body and then cut. And then feces or digested food goes outside of the abdomen into a pouch. And that's instead of using the large this intestine um, system. Because in that particular surgery, they cut out the rectum uh, with the sigmoid colon, and they want the area to heal. And so then, then create this stoma, this opening outside of the body for a few months until the area heals. So those, those treatments to me seemed really harsh. I was scared of radiation. I was scared of, of chemotherapy. I didn't know what, what they would cause long-term. So I refused it. And I listened to something called uh, the truth about cancer. And I heard a lot of stories of people who healed from cancer naturally. And I decided to try. And so I did. I tried um, many different modalities, treatment plans. Did you get pushback from your doctors for that? I did. Yes, yes. There was definitely, I'm going to say, judgment. Um, and many doctors, you know, they were very concerned for me, I'm going to say. They were concerned for me. And so they, they thought I was crazy. And, you know, that for rectal cancer, the traditional medicine has a pretty high success rate curing rate and so they were concerned that I was doing something that you know I would not recover from and so it came at me with a judgment and a lot of concern and that was challenging you know because I still needed to to have um scans done while I was doing what it, whatever method I was doing were you afraid of the chemo and radiation because of the damage those things do while they're killing the cancer or was there something else that made you afraid of it? Many things, radiation to with rectal cancer, the rectum sits right under the vagina, the uterus, the bladder, the ovaries. And so they were all going to get hit. And the long-term effects from all of those, I wasn't sure about. I knew that my, my grandmother had osteoporosis and she had a hysterectomy and an, what's it called? Oo-rectomy. Oo-frectomy when they take out also the, the ovaries. And, and then she became hunchback. I was concerned about that. I was still considering getting pregnant with a partner that I didn't have yet. So all, all of those reasons um, I was concerned and afraid of. Yeah. And what were the alternative treatments you sought? Um, 
the first one we did a lot of cleansings so I took a lot of herbs and mushrooms and did a lot of cleansings and went to um, a guy that had a machine that would scan the body and like like a rife machine and then would um, send back frequencies to kill the, the, the cancer. I did that. Um, I went to um, saunas to do some heat therapies. I did UV blood irradiation, uh, three weeks of vitamin C, um, laetrile, which is an apricot pit, ozone insufflations, which means there's a catheter that goes inside the rectum and it's hooked up to an ozone machine. And I would put that because ozone supposedly has, has a lot of oxygen and that can kill cancer. So I did a lot of different things. Um, later on, I went to uh, Hope for Cancer. It's a, a clinic in Mexico, and I did their their program. And their program halted the growth, um, so it stayed, let's say, at five centimeters. So at first, it was one point eight. Then what I was doing, the first stuff, the first things that I was doing, it went to two point two, then four point five, then five. So it was really growing during the alternative therapies. It was. That didn't dissuade you at all? Not yet. No, I, I kept believing that there's a way, there's a way to make it work. It worked for them. Why wouldn't it work for me? You know, it works for some people. So I just kept reading about people who were healing from it. And I said, okay, well, if this is not it. Well, let me try this. The hope for cancer, their things, kept it at five centimeters and... But it was $2,000 each month, in addition to the $42,000 that I paid for three weeks and three, and three months' supply of the medication. And I thought, wow, that's too much money that I'm not going to have. So I got off of that. I went to the Optimum Health Institute in San Diego. I did their three-week cleanse, and then I maintained their program at home. Then I did a scan, and it was 10 centimeters. So that's then stage three. Yeah, then it's yeah. I started moving to to the lymph nodes. Yes, and but I didn't give up. I did a three week green juice fast. There was just vegetables. Were people around you losing their minds that you were not seeing that you weren't getting results and worrying that you were heading toward the abyss? Yes. Yes, they were all very scared, and they all knew that it's my life, it's my choices, I get to try things the way I get to try them. I think they were rooting for me, but they were so scared, they had no idea if I was going to live or not. Yeah, that was, that was, you know, wow, that was so tough. At the beginning, I had to tell everybody. I said, you know, you might get scared about this, but if you get scared, I'm going to get scared, and I don't want to get scared. You know, I, I'm going to walk some kind of a path. I'm going to try it. Hope it works. And please be supportive. And if you can't be supportive, then, you know, let's not hang out until until I can. So what happened next? Well, you know, nothing worked. So I had to finally, you know, I, I went to um, to an oncologist. He was really challenging for me because he was, I think, really frightened for me. But he was also like, you're going to die. <laughs> Don't you want to be cured? Don't you want to be cured? Go talk to this surgeon. We're really lucky to have him. And at the same day, you know, I insisted that my cousin come with me. Insisted that my cousin come with me. Because I'm single, so different people come with me to doctor appointments. Her mom said, I'll come with you. And I said, no, I want her to come. Like, it was so clear that my co this cousin had to come with me. And when she came and he said the name of the surgeon, she said, oh, Steen, Steen, Dr. Steen. I, I know his wife. She was my gynecologist. Oh, I love her. She's great. Well, she's great. He's great. And you know what? There was something about that that made me say, okay, I'll go talk to him. Yeah. And so I did talk to him. He was a wonderful guy. I asked him about the treatments. Um, I, you know, really appreciated him. He he was very kind to me with no judgment and he was willing to consider all possibilities. 
do you find that there is an irony to the fact that the thing that you feared most about what would happen had you done this traditional quote-unquote way of going about killing a cancer when it was still only stage two that now at stage three to four was starting to overwhelm your body and then would create the scenario where things would get really hairy if you will you know I never I didn't think about it I didn't think about it I was just like this is my next step (laughs) this is my next step just just looking at the next step that's it I mean and when I got that you know because I was still doing all these things you know the beamer all the time and when I got the report one day and it said that the mesorectal fat was thick and a couple of lymph nodes you know had involvement the mesorectal fat is outside of the rectum and that's when I was like okay (laughs) it's going out of the rectum if I don't address it right now it is going to be stage four Mm -hmm. yeah and that's when I put that switch on and it was really hard it was really hard to say okay I'm gonna surrender and I'm gonna need to use these really harsh treatments and you did get damaged from it I did Mm -hmm. can we talk about that a little bit whatever you're comfortable with yeah yeah definitely Yeah. So with radiation, radiation to the pelvis means it's going to hit all these organs for a woman in the pelvis and for men too, Uh, but women have more organs in the pelvis. And so, yeah, the ovaries are killed. So there's immediate menopause, no more estrogen and progesterone, at least what the ovaries produce. Then the, the uterus has some scar tissue. So it's non-functional and can't go in into the uterus. After several years after the radiation treatments, I started feeling pressure in the lower part of my body. And then I needed to do a scan and there was fluid trapped in the cervix and the cervical canal. And so they had to go inside and do a DNC, but not, they couldn't get into the the uterus because of the scar tissue, but they had to open it for the water to drain. A year later, the same thing because the tissue is irradiated. It is not a normal tissue. It never goes back to being normal. So, you know, radiation finished and I I was told about menopause and the ovaries and the uterus and there was 15% chance that the bladder would be also affected. I was lucky that mine wasn't. Two weeks later, after no two weeks later, two months later, I had sex with a partner and it hurt. And and I didn't know why. I thought, why, why does penetration hurt? No one said anything. I thought, okay, maybe still from the radiation, maybe it hasn't healed yet, even though it's been two months. Okay. A few days later, I got a, I got a text from my sister and it said, my friend who is a radiation oncologist told me to tell you that radiation oncologists usually don't talk about it, but you need to use dilators. And I thought, what are dilators? No one ever mentioned that. I had no idea. Like, what? So I I looked online, what are dilators? Huh, how interesting. But I had surgery coming up in in 10 days. so, So I didn't look into it you know, very deeply. I said, I'll deal with it after surgeries. And there was surgery, blah, blah, blah. And then um, sometime after that, um, I met a woman, she was introduced to me and she had anal cancer and she had radiation. Okay. This was like three years later. And I said, Hey, do you have any, any pain? You know, how's your sexuality? Do you have any, any vaginal pain with penetration? And she said, oh, um, well, I had radiation three years ago and a lot of scar tissue built up in the vagina. And so my husband and I, we can't have penetration because it's all closed up. 
the vagina is closed. And I said, wow, did anybody tell you that? Did they tell you that could happen, would happen? Were you informed at all? And she said, no. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's her and me. And then I met another woman that had rectal cancer. And I said, did you have radiation? She said, yes. And I said, do you have pain with intercourse? And she said, I do. And I said, did anyone tell you that you that, that would happen? And she said, no. And at that point, I joined two colorectal Facebook pages. And I started posting. Is, is this normal? Were you told? You know, what do you do with this pain? How do you deal with it? How do you have sex? How, how do you stay sexual? And there were a lot of angry posts from a lot of very angry women um, saying they weren't told that they told me that, you know, dilators have to be used. Some of them said the radiation oncologist office gave them dilators. Some women said, wow, I can't believe it. What today they still don't tell you, you know, in 2018, they still don't, don't say anything about it. There was a lot of surprise. I, I asked them, you know, what about the pain? And they said, well, you just live through it. You know, you, 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 you know, try to masturbate, try to use vibration to distract the pain. And so I, you know, this was all new. It was all new because I didn't know this was not told, not shared. And I, I had no idea. And here I am in a dilemma, you know, after chemo and surgery and living with a stoma, trying to figure out the stoma, needed to figure out sexuality. Um, so it took, it took a while. I went to a couple of different gynecologists. They said the pain was because of dryness. And I was like, it's not because of dryness. There's something else. And they're like, no, no, it's because of dryness because you're menopausal now. No, no, that's not it. Okay. Take estrogen creams. Okay. That's for the you know, to, to, to have more lubrication in the, in the vagina. So, um, I called back the radiation oncologist and office and I said, Hey, so I'm, I, I have vaginal damage from the radiation. I'm told that offices give women dilators and they said, we only give them to gynecological cancers. And I said, you're kidding me, right? Like the rectum is right under the vagina and it gets hit when you're focusing on the rectum. It passes through the vagina. And, oh, I'm sorry, we just don't do that. My disbelief, my anger, my rage just went up the roof because I was thinking, what, how, how is this possible? How are they just so unaware, uncaring, inhumane? I mean, lots of women go through this. I'm not the first person. So that was really shocking to me. And after that, I did a really big survey on the colorectal face, Facebook pages. And I asked, you know, who, how many women were told of all the effects? So then I learned that it was the scar tissue through the, through the women on the Facebook pages. They explained to me that what's painful is that there's scar tissue in the vagina and the nerves get hit there and they're hypersensitive. So it doesn't matter whether it's a speculum that goes in, a, a hand, a finger, a penis, it's going to hurt because it rubs against th those nerves and it they send these pain signals. So with pain signals, who wants to, to, to have sex? Nobody. Who wants to use the, the dilators? Nobody. Why? Because it's painful. So I kept asking, what do you do with pain? What do you do with pain? What do you do with pain? Then one woman finally, after after a long time, she said she said that after she saw five different gynecologists, the last one gave her a recipe with some nerve blocker that helps. And I was like, okay, so there's a nerve blocker. Okay, then I could use the dilator. Yeah. So yeah. That was kind of the process. And out of the survey that I did, and this was in September of 2018, 100 women got back to me and 25 of them basically were told everything. Great. Yay. There are people that are told and are supported and wonderful. And about 12% were told partial things, not the whole thing, but they had either friends who 
had this before them or they were on the Facebook pages and read women's posts and then asked their their radiation oncologists for dilators and they asked questions. And 63 women that got back to me were not told of anything sexual that's going to be different after radiation treatment. And yeah, lots of very angry, a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And so, you know, after reading that, I said, you know, I just can't let that go. You know, I can't let that's that's going to go in the book. And somehow I want these women to have a voice. And I want them to have a voice along with my voice. Yeah, things need to be different. There has to be transparency. There has to be medical transparency and a shared decision-making with the patient. This is what's going to happen. Why do we do this? Because this is the percent survival, but these are all the things you're going to need to deal with after. Yeah, it is to me just a, a commentary, if you will, on the value of women in society, especially when it comes to their sexuality and what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say it hasn't yet sunk in to the whole of society. I'm going to say the medical field to how important that is, how important sexuality is for, for being human, for our connecting with a partner. Well, I've had a biopsy in, in my, you know, uterine biopsy. They don't anesthetize you. They don't give you any kind of numbing, nothing. They just like, this is going to hurt like a motherfucker for a real quick second. And then they do it. And I, after I had that done, it was negative. But after it was done, I asked around and many women had had the same experience. And I thought, my God, they would never do that to a man ever. He's numb to high heaven when they take care of the old vasectomy situation. You know what I mean? <laughs> and women are just expected to endure these things. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that you're right. And there's just, it's just, I don't, I don't know if whether it's people not being comfortable with women's sexuality, talking about women's sexuality. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or <laughs> whether it's complete ignorance. Yes. You know, lack of awareness. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Some, on the line, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, some some centers now do talk about it. Some centers are great. I was just reading yesterday for Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center that part of their treatment plan with rectal cancer female patients is they send them to to a um to a sex therapist as part of the center to talk about what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. Great. But that should be the standard everywhere. Across the board. Sure. Standard of care. I think you're right. I think there is, there's something about the shame around sexuality more specifically and how it is for people with uterus or people with vaginas. Yeah. You know, when I first started receiving the, radiation treat within a week i could start to feel the labia buzzing labia and clitoris and i was like why are they buzzing why are they buzzing are they irradiating the labia like like am i like going to be like sexually non-functional and i went to the to the technician and i said listen my labia is buzzing so i think something's wrong here and i think they need to look at the calculations and he brought me to the radiation oncologist and I said the same thing. And he said, okay, let, let, let us check. And the next day when I came, I went to visit him before going to the treatment. And he said that I was right. And they, and they changed their calculations, but isn't that amazing? The errors, the not paying attention, the not, not meticulous about valuing again, sexuality women's sexuality can that that is so important to preserve pleasure and bonding that they really for those types of calculations they have to look really really like do them over and over and make sure can we do it this way or another way or how can we not go through that area yeah yeah and, and i'm guessing that there are women who wouldn't 
say anything. Oh, of course. Uh, let's talk about the book, uh, Healing the Deepest Wounds. You decided to take all this information and to be a voice for the voiceless. Yes. 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 I wrote a book and it does. It, it contains the whole journey. I did want to be a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to raise awareness about how important it is to keep the patient and women specifically their well-being after these treatments, especially radiation, especially to the pelvis, you know, that has to be part of the standard of care and it has to be talked about and honesty and transparency. This is what's going to happen. You know, so, I mean, I would love there to be a, you know, a, a universal sheet of paper, a video explaining a consultation with a sex therapy or a sexual health nurse ahead of time and a sexual health nurse checking in with the patient during treatment after treatment constantly you know to make sure that sexual health is preserved it's not going to be in all cases because of the nature of all of how tight everything is in the pelvis you know, cancers can grow, especially again, if women don't stand up to themselves and they don't go to the doctor when they see bleeding in, in the rectum, you know, bleeding on the stool, they don't go and say, check this, check this, check this. It's not a hemorrhoid. It's not a hemorrhoid. Check again. If they don't do that in time. It can spread to the vagina, to the ovary, to the uterus, you know, and, and then a part of that could be taken out so many things there are so important to statistically speaking uh, they are seeing a huge increase in colon cancer among young women specifically but in just the younger generations here's the thing when people get colonoscopies they're supposed to get them age 50 and onward but it's starting to happen to people at such a young age that if you are feeling like something is wrong just across the board, I don't, uh, whatever gender you are, however, it doesn't matter. If you feel like something is wrong, stand up for yourself because nobody else is going to do that for you, in, likely. I mean, if you have an advocate, great, but most of us don't. And you're important and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity and have your voice and your body be heard. I cannot stress that enough to the listeners. It's so important. It's vital. Yeah, it's so important. You know, I keep saying in the in the book over and over, advocate for yourself, advocate for yourself, advocate for yourself. Yeah, because no one's going to do it. And, and actually, it's it's our job. It's our job. We are the ones living in this body. And advocating is actually empowerment. And especially for us women who... You know, we're, we're, we're kind of reared to be nice, to, you know, not, not make trouble to, you know, authority, listen to authority, especially this, this is a journey of empowerment. It's like, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand up for me and yes. I have to do it. I have to do it. You know, it's a matter of life and death and we have to do it. Yeah. When I saw that smear, that red smear on the stool it was clear something is wrong also i advocate being a poop look looker look at your poop <laughs> it is certainly going to tell you a lot about your health and well-being <laughs> for sure uh, it's interesting to such a journey that you spent all this time in the soul searching and and touching that part that is so not of the grounded body if you will and then being so forced into your body to have to stand up for it yeah 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 it was yeah interesting and weird and odd and then terrifying and all of the things yeah where are you now with your health journey i'm good it's been so all the stuff that i was afraid of i did um, and, and it did, it did save my life. All the doctors saved my life. All those uh, the equipment saved my life. I finished chemo in January of 2018. 
and my second surgery was in April of 2018. So I'm good. Yeah, and I do my best. Obviously, this is a different body. I had to learn how to do sexuality. I had to learn how to, you know, uh, an irradiated tissue in the vagina uh, with menopause is not a normal tissue and regular, you know, thrusting sexuality isn't the best option. So I had to learn and educate myself on other ways of being sexual and more tender with my female parts now. And that's good. I've learned how I've learned how to do it. And I'm grateful. There is pain. If I don't use the cream, there's there's always pain with penetration. It goes away after after penetration. And so, you know, it's it's good. And, you know, I have a, a new I don't have a rectum. And so living without a rectum is it's a whole other way, you know, of living. And it took a long time to learn how to be with that. But okay. Do you you have to use an external bag? I don't have an external bag anymore because they reversed the ileostomy. I had it reversed um, in 2018. That was the second surgery. And then the body had to learn how to work again. Now, my colon was asleep for eight and a half months. It wasn't working. And so imagine all the gut flora has died. The good gut flora has died. So it's probably pretty, pretty nasty stuff in there. Okay, that has probably received some chemotherapy and mutated. So it's pretty nasty in there. The lining, the mucus lining of the colon that was asleep for eight and a half months, um, when when they first reconnected me, uh, it, the, the 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 mucus lining wasn't normal as it is. And so what happened was that this when poop would come out, and I would need to have many bowel movements a day because a rectum is, is, is a storage. It stores. And then when you don't have a storage, every time you eat, you got to go eat, go, eat, go, eat, go, eat. Yeah. Go. Or a tube basically. <laughs> it's a tube. Yeah. Without, without a, a storage unit, it, it would become acidic. And then the acidity would kind of burn around the anus. So it, it really, it took probably a year for the acidity to, to, to leave. And that first year was, was so challenging. So challenging. I bet. Oof. You have endured a lot. And I mean, another thing of advocacy is now advocating to your sexual partners. And by you, I mean the royal you, anyone that has to go through this. I mean, one has to advocate with sexual partners anyway. That's the beauty of having sexual partners is you get to say what it is that works for you and doesn't work for you and things like that. Have you found those conversations to be easier now that you have had to advocate for yourself for so long? I'm so I'm so open as it is. I mean, this is why I can write about it so openly. You know, I've been playing with this book forever and ever, and I'm constantly doing things with it. And so when I when I date and people say, "Oh, what you know, what are you doing?" and I'm saying, "Oh, I'm editing." What are you editing? Oh, I'm writing a book. What's about, about rectal cancer? I had rectal cancer, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a lot about, you know, it's got a lot about sexuality, blah, blah, blah. And then I tell them, you know, radiation did this. It's in the vagina. So there's pain, there's scar tissue. And so sexuality is different for me. And I'm pretty matter of fact about it. I'm not like, oh, let me tell you, well, you know, no, I'm just like, this is how it is. Sexuality is different. And, and then I have to teach. Yeah. And so far, everybody has wanted to learn. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Tell everyone how they may find you and your book and if they have questions for you. The name of the book is Healing the Deepest Wounds, Life-Giving Lessons from My Journey with Rectal Cancer Stage 2-3 by Kineret Sherman, K-I-N-E-R-E-T. Sherman, S-A-G-R-M-A-N. I also have a, a website, kineritsherman.com, and you can contact me through there or Facebook. Great. I really appreciate your story and your time and your honesty and integrity with your journey. It's, it's I think, really helpful for people to hear that someone else has been through it and 
and maybe can help inspire someone to stand up for themselves that much more. Yeah, thank you. There's one other thing that's super important for me also when people are on this journey and not on this journey. Forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. It's also part of a self-advocacy because we need, as, as much as we need to be in integrity, you know, with ourselves and present ourselves with in, in the world with the, you know, all medical things or anything else we need to advocate for. We need to also advocate for our own mental health and our own emotional health. And that's by letting go, doing whatever is needed to let go of holding on to angers and pains and judgments and resentments and guilts and shames and all that. It, it is also part of the self-advocacy, but that's the self-advocacy with self, with letting go of whatever habits there are, you know, that we haven't cleaned up with ourselves. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much, Susan. It's really been a delight and I'm so um, happy to have met you and spent some time with you. You're so delightful. Oh, thanks. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.